Matthew chapter 20, if you'd like to turn there. But I want to begin by saying this, that grace is unfair. Grace is unfair, which is one of the hardest things about it. Grace is not about fairness. Do you remember the first time you ever went swimming in water over your head? you remember how you felt? You don't remember that. You're older than I thought. I remember first time I went swimming in water over my head, kicking your legs wildly, waving your arms frantically, trying to get a handle on something solid, something stable, something that will help you keep your head high enough so that you can breathe. You remember the fear? You remember how much you resisted your swimming instructor's counsel to relax and not panic? I'm drowning. Don't panic. How you fought the water instead of yielding to its buoyant qualities? Indulging the concept of God's grace is like swimming in water over our heads. You can't reach the bottom. If you are not careful, you can drown in it. Like the refreshing depths of a calm pool, God's grace is inviting, yet it is intimidating. It's irresistible, yet extremely threatening. It's possessable, yet forever beyond our reach and grasp. The best we can do is yield to it, to relax in it, and to allow ourselves to drift ever so calmly into the wide expanse of it, to the place where Christ will teach us not to fear it. Jesus knew all too well about our built-in resistance to grace. It's evidenced by the frequency with which he spoke about it. As someone noted, Jesus saw grace everywhere, yet he never analyzed or defined it. And almost never used the word. I challenge you. Look up all the words of Jesus in the scripture and see how many times he used the word grace. Not many. Instead, he communicated grace through stories which we know as parables. And they are not without contemporary examples, one of which appeared in the Boston Globe in June of 1990. It was the true account of a most unusual wedding banquet. Accompanied by her fiancé, a woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston and ordered their wedding meal. The two of them poured over the menu, made selections of china and silver, pointed to pictures of the flower arrangements that they liked. They both had expensive taste, and the bill came to $13,000. And after leaving a check for half that amount as down payment, the couple went home to flip through books of wedding announcements. This is a true story, mind you. The day the announcements were supposed to hit the mailbox, the potential groom got cold feet. I'm just not sure, he said. It's a big commitment. Let's think about this a little longer. When his angry fiancé returned to the Hyatt Hotel to cancel the banquet, the events manager could not have been more understanding. The same thing happened to me, honey, she said, and told the story of her own broken engagement. But about the refund, she had bad news. The contract is binding. You're only entitled to $1,300 back. 
You have two options, though. To forfeit the rest of the down payment or go ahead with the banquet. I'm sorry, really, I am. Well, it seemed crazy, but the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party. Not as a wedding banquet, mind you, but as a big, huge blowout. Ten years before, this same woman had been living in a homeless shelter. She had gotten back on her feet, found a good job, and set aside a sizable nest egg, and now she had this wild notion of using her savings to treat the down and outs of Boston in a night on the town. And so it was that in June of 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted a party such as it had never seen before. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. and sent invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters. And that warm summer night, people who were used to peeling half-gnawed pizza off cardboard boxes dined instead on chicken cordon bleu. Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up by crutches and aluminum walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants, and addicts took one night off from the hard life on the sidewalks outside and instead sipped champagne, ate chocolate wedding cake, and danced to big band melodies late into the night. That's grace. Many of Jesus' parables are picture windows into the reality of grace that God dispenses to a sinful, undeserving world. They are common scenarios with uncommon conclusions, real-life examples that move us into deep water, which makes us extremely uncomfortable to say the least. For instance, Luke writes of a shepherd who leaves 99 sheep unattended, vulnerable to wolves, sheep stealers, and nothing to restrain them from bolting from, away from the flock in order to search for one that's strayed. Seems pretty radical to me. Again, Luke records Jesus' story of a prodigal son who demands his inheritance, then proceeds to throw it all away on a wild party and binge of loose living. He returns to a lovesick father who's waiting anxiously by the window for his long-lost son, and then he gets a big party thrown in honor of his return to the dismay of his older brother. Outrageous. See, the mathematics of God's grace is absolutely absurd to us. In today's text, Matthew records a parable on which I haven't heard a whole lot of sermons offered, and probably for very good reason. It is hard to handle, super hard to handle. We always want to find something in this text that eases the injustice of it, or seeming injustice of it. We somehow want to make the conclusion of the story fair and acceptable. Let me tell you right now, at the very beginning, it's not you will not like the end of this story. You'll kick against it. You'll become frustrated with it. You'll be afraid of the implications of it in your own life. I'm warning, I'm warning you now because Jesus is going to take us all out into theological water deeper than you and I care to go. And the truth of the matter is I don't think Jesus gave us these parables primarily to teach us about ethics or morals or about how to live. No, he spoke them to correct our spiritual nearsightedness so that we could envision beyond the realm of our earthly experience who God is and how God loves. 
which is not like us. His parables were not just stories told to capture the attention of his listeners or literary devices to relate theological truth to us, not necessarily. They were, as one writer suggests, the template of Jesus' life on earth. God with us. Because he is the host of an amazing banquet who welcomes the hopeless and the helpless off the street. He is the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go in search of the one. He's the one who longs for us like a lovesick father. And he is the employer who dispenses as much grace to those who have labored under trying conditions for 12 hours as he does to those who have barely worked for one. Grace is entirely unfair. But grace is not about fairness, is it? The hard-to-handle reality about God's grace is that it cannot be reduced to earthly accounting principles, can it? In our economy, the earthly realm of ungrace, as someone put it, as it's been called, certain workers deserve more than others. But as Philip Yancey rightly observes, in the realm of God's grace, the word deserve doesn't even apply. Grace cannot be calculated like a worker's wages. It's not something that one earns. It's a gift. And God is in the business of dispensing gifts, not wages. And it's a good thing, too. Because if we who are sinners saved only by the grace of God are bent on demanding wages, we're going to be sorely regretful in the end. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Hey, turn, if you're not there, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 20. Let's look at the verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you go out into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is mine? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first, and the first last. You'd probably like me to stop now. That's enough truth for one day. 
There is one truth that undeniably rings from this parable that God's grace is hard to handle. Even for those who have been the recipients of it. In fact, this parable is aimed precisely not at the Pharisees. It's not aimed at the scribes. It is not aimed at the lawyers, Sadducees, or the arrogant, self-righteous, rich, young rulers of the world. No, quite the contrary. It is aimed at, guess who? The disciples. We are the target of this story. In reaction to Peter's question in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 27, why don't you look at that? It's uh, just back up from uh, Matthew chapter 20, a couple verses. Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus assures his followers that they will indeed be blessed for their sacrificial service in the kingdom. But as far as the eternal inheritance of salvation is concerned, Everyone finishes, Jesus says, in a dead heat. There are no gold, silver, or bronze medal winners in terms of salvation. Grace is not about finishing first or last. It is about not counting. Grace is not about finishing first or last. It is about not counting. Jesus does five things in the course of this parable which involve the disciples and their view of grace. Let me just give them to you right up front if you're taking notes and then we'll unpack them. Number one, he sized them up. Number two, he set them up. Number three, he shook them up. Number four, he shut them up. And number five, he summed it all up. So that's, that's your outline for the day. And make no mistake about it, friends, he's going to do the same thing with you and me. Jesus wants to bring our view of grace into alignment with the truth. So the first thing that Jesus does here is he sized them up with a curious statement. Look at chapter 19 and verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now look at the last verse in this text, verse 16 of chapter 20. So the last shall be first, and the first last. So here we have bookends, and we have a context for which we're dealing with. Like bookends, Jesus encloses the lesson with a statement that arouses the curiosity of every single one of his followers. What in the world does he mean by this statement? In thinking it through, the riddle simply becomes a proverb that means everyone finishes in a tie. If the last are first and the first are last, positioning then becomes a moot point, right? In what seems to be a great reversal, and that's what I've titled this, this sermon, we actually find a wonderful equalization. In the realm of God's kingdom, in the sphere of God's grace, everyone crosses the finish line as a winner. The fastest runners, the hardest workers, the oldest believers all receive the same prize of eternal life as the slowest, the weakest, and the youngest in the faith. How does that grab you? Now, the whole point of the parable is that God's grace is sovereignly dispensed according to his generosity, not according to human merit. 
Otherwise, it wouldn't be considered grace, would it? The thief on the cross, saved by the skin of his teeth, gets the same paradise promised him as the apostle Paul, who fought the good fight of faith after years of sacrificial service. Same paradise. Grace is the great equalizer. The kingdom of heaven does not operate on a merit system. This may be bad economics, but it's awful good theology. And Jesus was not teaching economics in this parable, was he? Sounds pretty unfair, doesn't it? It is unfair. Grace is not about fair. Grace is about favor. Unmerited favor. And it's hard to handle. I I read that in a contemporary version of this particular parable, the workers hired late in the afternoon worked so hard that the employer, impressed, decides to award them a full day's wages. That's not what it says, is it? Not so in Jesus' version. You see, in our human reasoning, we always want to change the parameters. We want to make it fit our particular philosophy. We don't like what real grace is about unless we're on the receiving end of it. No one... No one of us is going to inherit the kingdom by merit. Not one of us comes close to working hard enough or long enough or up to a high enough standard to satisfy God's requirement for a perfect life, do we? Mark Twain put it this way, heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. Robert Capone said it well. He said, if the world could have been saved by good bookkeeping, it would have been saved by Moses, not Jesus. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9 says in the New Century Version. But God's mercy is great, and he loved us very much. Though we were spiritually dead because of the things we did against God, he gave us new life in Christ. You have been saved by God's grace. And he raised us up with Christ and gave us a seat with him in the heavens. And he did this for those in Christ Jesus so that for all future time he could show the very great riches of his grace by being kind to us in Christ Jesus. I mean that you have been saved by grace through believing. You did not save yourselves. It was a gift from God. It was not the result of your own efforts. So you cannot brag about it. You know, grace is like, grace is like grits. It is. I remember hearing a story which involved this young northerner who on a southern trip had to drive through the south for the first time of his life. And by the time he arrived in South Carolina, he was hungry. He stopped at a roadside diner and he ordered scrambled eggs and sausage. You guys ever drive in the south and go to diners or restaurants? And he was so taken by surprise when his breakfast came and there was this large white blob on his plate. He goes, what's that? To the waitress. She says, them grits, sir. <laughs> but I didn't order grits, she, he said. And she said, you don't order grits. They just come. <laughs> and that, my friends, is very much like grace. You don't order it. It just comes. Here's the truth. When grace is expected, or worse yet, demanded, 
It's a contradiction of terms. But Jesus sizes us up, doesn't he? He knows us so well and he seeks to move us beyond the limits of our human understanding and into the deep well of truth about his kingdom. And so after sizing them up with a curious statement, secondly, he set them up with a common scenario. First seven verses of chapter 20, we've already read them. But basically, it's this landowner who went out in the morning and hired laborers. And he goes out all throughout the day and hires all these different laborers up until the last hour. And he says to them, you go into the vineyard too. So there's the contextual setting for you, okay? I want to give you a little bit of background, though. Before Jesus told this parable, it got started off by something else. In chapter 19, in verse 16, follow with me. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I might obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter eternal life into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, don't commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? So this is the guy that's trying to do it on merit. Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And he went away grieved, right? Because he was one who owned much property. Jesus got right into his heart. See, he wasn't keeping the commandments, was he? And no one does. He said, truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, when we heard this, if we were there, right? They were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people it's impossible, with God all things are possible. And then Peter, of course, pipes up and he says, behold, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? There's a tricky one. And Jesus said to them, you have followed me in the regeneration. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you'll sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. And everyone who have left houses, brothers, sisters, father or mother or children or farms for my namesake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last firsts. That's the context here. See, they were the workers that had been hired at the start of the day. 6 a.m., the Jewish workday went from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., 12 hours. The implication here is that Peter and the others were expecting special treatment from Jesus because of their labor. Indeed, they would be rewarded, according to Jesus' statement, in addition to the eternal life that they would inherit. But Jesus wasn't teaching about the differences of rewards. He was teaching about the equality of salvation about eternal life. He was pointing out the fact that in the kingdom, positioning is unimportant. Unimportant. There's no one more important person than anyone else. No one inherits a greater portion of eternal life than anyone else. Everyone who comes to Christ gets the whole package. Some of us fall into the same trap as Peter, don't we? After we get a few years of Christian service under our belts, we think that we're quite something. And if we're not careful, we can get caught up in all this comparison thing. As if the Christian race is some kind of competition. 
Pastors are notorious for this, you know. And I've been to enough leadership conferences and pastors' conferences and seminars to know it goes something like this. You know, you meet someone in the ministry and they begin to do the circle thing. You know, you're looking at each other and you're circling each other, checking each other out. Right? Checking out the clothes, checking out the age, checking out the waist factor. The amount of hair he still has and how gray it's become. Then it's the philosophy of ministry, where they went to school, what degree they hold. And then someone pops the big question that everybody's thinking about. It's the elephant in the room. Well, how many people are in your church? Is this your first church? As if pastoring one church for your entire life is some kind of handicap. How long have you been there? How big was it when you got there? How many missionaries do you support? What's your annual budget? On and on and on it goes, vying for some imaginary position in the grand scheme of things. And don't think for one minute that it's just pastors who do this. I've seen it happen with all kinds of Christians, whether in leadership or not. We have this penchant for comparison, this insatiable desire to be in place number one. The disciples reveal what's inside of all of us. That insidious loose thread of pride which threatens to unravel us at the seams. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. Look at that. At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom? They're fishing for compliments. And then Peter, again in Matthew 19, verse 27, which we just read. Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Those are the two big questions on a lot of people's minds, right? Who's the greatest? What's in it for me? We're no different than the disciples. But Jesus gives them this calculated setup in verses 2 to 7, basically, with this whole parable about the landowner going out and hiring different people throughout the day. Everything in this parable suggests a common situation up until verse 7. It was common for employers to hire day workers for the vineyards during the harvest in order to get the crop in before the rains came. In the story, the owner was particularly conscientious, having hired workers at various times of the day. He had agreed with the first workers hired on a denarius for the day's work, which was an extremely good wage, by the way, for a day laborer who were the lowest class of people on the economic scale then. Roman soldiers and well-respected servants of the day were paid a denarius for the day. Usually not day laborers. So the landowner is portrayed here by Jesus as very generous and gracious to begin with. In addition, he was extremely compassionate toward those who had been passed up by the other employers and enlisted them for the final hour of the Jewish work day. So Jesus had them. He had the disciples right in the palm of his hand when he set this whole thing up. He had drawn them into a very common situation in everyday life in Palestine. He set them up perfectly, not to humiliate them, mind you, but to drive home this powerful lesson about grace in the kingdom of God. 
He sized them up with this curious statement, set them up with a common scenario, and in the next few verses, he shook them up with this climactic surprise. Verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last group first, and then he paid them all the same. Look at the surprising reversal in verse 8. At the end of the workday, the landowner brought the workers together, paid them according to the Jewish law, which said you need to pay your laborers on the day that they render service. That's Leviticus 19.13, if you're interested, and Deuteronomy 24.15. But the only twist here is that he instructed his foreman to pay them in reverse order of when he hired them. That was an unusual request, but it would not have shocked the disciples Yet it's here that Jesus' main point begins to unfold with the surprising remittance in verse 9. When those were hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. Now, picture the disciples' faces. All of a sudden now, surprise was probably coming onto their face. Wouldn't it be on yours if you didn't know this parable? Nothing was stated in the story about how much the last group would receive when they were hired. They were probably amazed at this man's generosity, those last workers that came in. Imagine the surprise on their faces. Look at what we got. One hour's work. A denarius. I was talking to someone one day some years ago who got a raise, but they didn't get the raise at their job that they expected to get. Rather than a few extra dollars, the person got double their previous pay. Wow. Yeah, wow. You said it. Somebody else mouthed it at the same time. Grace is amazing, isn't it? These workers didn't deserve a denarius, but they got it. Praise the Lord. I'll bet they were all praising the Lord. But look at the next verse. Verse 10, when those hired first came, first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. When this landowner started with the last group and gave them a full denarius, the first group probably thought, ha ha, he's saving the best for last. That was a false assumption, wasn't it? They thought they'd receive more. They presumed they were wrong. They assumed a certain standard of conduct by the owner, but it was a false standard. And if you really unpack it, the employer did not cheat anybody out of wages, did he? No, the full-day workers got what they were promised. And as someone has said, their discontent arose from the scandalous mathematics of grace. They could not accept that their employer had the right to do what he wanted with his money when it meant paying scoundrels 12 times what they deserved. And notice also their fiery assertion. They grumbled at the, at the landowner. Here's the bottom line. That they all got more than they deserved, Right? Every one of them. And no one got less than what they were promised. You and I would probably have paid the hardest workers 12 times the wage. But the truly amazing part about grace is not that the one-hour workers got as much as the 12-hour laborers. That's not the amazing part about grace. 
The amazing part about grace is that any one of them were hired at all. As I said earlier, in the realm of God's grace, the word deserve doesn't even apply. And that is extremely hard for us to deal with. The gospel of grace is not at all like anything we could devise on our own, is it? Ask people what they must do to get to heaven like the rich young ruler, and most people will respond, be good. The gospel of Jesus contradicts all that and says all we must do is cry help. Help to Jesus. The true encounter with God's amazing grace happens when we stop making the comparisons and when we put the amazing back into grace, when we are so enthralled with the gift that we've received itself, we're so thankful for it that we literally shed tears of joy whenever it is dispensed into someone else's life and weep tears of sorrow when people reject it. Are you moved to tears when somebody who is so far away from God finally receives it? It's not always the attitude that some people have. When you think of the fact that a child abuser who comes to Christ gets in on the same floor as you and I do, don't you want to react like those workers did? I used to do an illustration with two yardsticks and showing how this actually works in God's plan. And I had different clothespins with names on it. One said Hitler, one said Billy Graham, another one said you and me or whatever. And I asked people to rate where on that cross that these things were supposed to be placed. That's not the way God's works, is it? They actually were put across the cross beam where Christ died, the great equalizer. The ground's level at the foot of the cross, isn't it? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, says Romans 3.23. There's none righteous, not one. And so they had a faulty assessment here in verse 12. The implication is that they grumbled about the inequality of the treatment. It's not fair, they screamed. Believe me, not one of us wants what is fair in light of our own sin. Blessed unfairness, Jesus is mine. I think that should be a hymn. You know, William Shakespeare once wrote these words. He said, that, that word grace on the lips of an ungrateful person is profane. Unquote. You know what? God can do whatever he wants with his grace, can he? Whatever. And since none of us deserve any of it, how can we argue with him? We should be so thankful for the grace that has been given to us that we'd want to share it with anyone. And yet we've all seen it, even in the actions of people who call themselves Christ followers. Remarkably, their inflammatory slogans and hate-filled remarks at gay rallies, abortion clinics, and death row executions mimic the contemptible sentiments of Jonah who despised the grace and compassion of God as it was poured out on Nineveh, the enemies of Israel, which we just saw recently when I preached that series. You remember that? 
When God saw their deeds, they turned from their wicked way, and then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared it would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, said, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said when I was in my country? In order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. In other words, in order to circumvent your grace being poured out. I knew that you're gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now take my life. For death is better than life. Sounds so, sounds so bad when you hear it out loud, doesn't it? But like Jonah, these disgruntled workers were focused on a perceived injustice. But there's no injustice with God. There never is injustice with God, is there? Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 16 says this, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. This is why universalism has such an appeal to people. Because everybody wins in the end no matter what. Now, I'm not preaching that. God's grace is poured out on whom God will pour it out upon, but you still have to come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. You just, that's what the Bible says, so therefore it must be done. And so, in verses 13 to 15, after sizing them up with a curious statement, after setting them up with a common scenario, after shaking them up with a climactic surprise, he shut them up with a critical sticking point. Verse 13. And he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what's yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do with what I wish with what is my own? And here's the kicker. Or is your eye envious because I am generous? See, we really don't understand the gravity of our sin and what we actually deserve, do we? None of us have the foggiest idea of what life would be like if God gave us what we deserved. It's his universe. If we have the right to distribute our earthly gifts as we deem necessary, how much more does God have the right to do it the way he pleases? Literally, the text in verse 15 reads like this, Is your eye evil because I am generous? Is your eye evil? Because I am generous. And we might ask the same question of ourselves. Doesn't it disturb you to think that after 40 or 50 years of serving Christ faithfully, through what at times seem to be almost unbearable circumstances, your inheritance of eternal life is going to be equal to the murderer who gets converted on death row five hours before his ex execution? Doesn't that disturb you? Does it bother you that the guy who raped and murdered and then did it again could be standing next to Jesus on the same level of acceptance as Billy Graham or Martin Luther or Peter or James or John? or Paul, or you and me. That's difficult to rejoice in that person's salvation. 
sometimes. Yeah. But you read the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, which character do you identify with? We all, we're all the prodigals, right? We're not the older brothers. Some people do identify with the older brother. Contemporary preacher once tinkered with the details of that parable to make the point that the elder brother was right in voicing his outrage at the father for rewarding irresponsible behavior. What sort of virtue and family values would his father be communicating by throwing a party for such a renegade, he said. In his version, this is the way he finished the parable. He had the father slip the ring on the robe of the elder brother, then kill the fatted calf in honor of all his years of faithfulness and obedience. And a woman in the back of the sanctuary yelled out, that's the way it should have been. My friends, God's amazing grace is amazingly hard to handle, isn't it? And we quickly forget the brokenness we experienced when we came to the cross. How broken were you? The critical sticking point, the crux of the issue here, the one which Jesus so fervently tried to instill in his disciples, is that there is no impartiality with God. None. Our spiritual inheritance is not given like an earthly one. It's not given on the basis of, watch this now, it's not given on the basis of seniority of age, priority of birth, or intensity of service but by the sovereignty of God. So let me say that again. Grace is not given on the basis of seniority of age, priority of birth, intensity of service, but by the sovereignty of God. And so, finally, Jesus summed it up with a concluding sentiment in verse 16. So, the last shall be first, and the first last. And you know, it would be years before the disciples would grasp onto that truth. Because in just a few more verses, if you read on in chapter 20, you find the mother of James and John asking that the places of honor in the kingdom be reserved for her sons. And Jesus again had to reverse their thinking. Hours before his death, as they all reclined at the table, at the, at the supper, they argued about who was greatest in Luke twenty-two, twenty-four. 24. And I guess the question that Jesus leaves us with is how long will it take us to learn? Philip Yancey wrote in his book, What's So Amazing About God's Grace? He says, from nursery school onward, we're taught how to succeed in the world of ungrace. The early bird gets the worm. No pain, no gain. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Demand your rights. Get what you pay for. I know these rules well because I live by them, he says. I work for what I earn. I like to win. I insist on my rights. I want people to get what they deserve. Nothing more, nothing less. Yet if I care to listen... I hear a loud whisper from the gospel that I did not get what I deserved. I deserved punishment and I got forgiveness. I deserved wrath and I got love. I deserved debtor's prison and got instead a clean credit history. 
I deserve stern lectures and crawl on your knees repentance. And I got a banquet thrown for me. A feast spread for me. I'm going to leave you with a word of scripture. For while we were still helpless, Paul wrote to the Romans, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's Romans 5, 6. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the amazing grace you pour out on us. Help us to hold it with such preciousness, Lord God, that we do not take it for granted. And as we look at people, as we come into contact with them, no matter how difficult the situation may be, and I know sometimes it's excruciatingly hard to offer grace to someone who's so bent on hurting us, hurting others. Help us to remember and put a picture in our minds of you on the cross for me. And may that totally transform that the way that we see people. For as we look into the eyes of others that need the grace that you have so blessed us with, may you give us a heart of compassion. And may our heart break the same way that yours breaks for others. And let us rejoice abundantly in the grace you poured out on us. For I ask it in the precious name of your son, Jesus, who hung on the cross that we might be forgiven, that we might have eternal life when we place our faith and trust in you. And it's in that holy and precious name that I pray. Amen.